Hello everyone, this is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project, and I just want to take this time to personally thank all of our monthly supporters. We could not do what we do without giving from people like you. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. And if you're not a monthly supporter and you would like to become one, you can go to jude3project.org and hit the donate tab and sign up. We are grateful for you and we hope you enjoy today's new episode. God bless. Hello, welcome to the Jew 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew 3 Project. Thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And I'm here today joined by the famous Dr. Uh, Craig Keener. Welcome, Dr. Keener. It's, it's so good to be with you, Lisa. Thank you so much. <laughs> good to just call me Craig. Okay. Good to have you um, with us. Um, and been so blessed by all your scholarship and work. Um, just throughout the throughout the years, just tell our audience just a little bit about who you are. <clears throat> well, I I uh, I was converted from atheism. I was a yeah. I was a pretty. Well, there are nice atheists and mean atheists. I was a mean atheist, mm -hmm. uh, but I was converted through an encounter with God, and then um, eventually I did my PhD in New Testament and Christian origins at Duke University. My uh, my wife, whom I met at Duke, she was doing her PhD at University of Paris. She was an exchange student from Congo in Central Africa. Um, so we've been married now for, uh, it'll be 20, 20 years this weekend. And Congratulations. Uh, yeah, we, we have a couple kids and I have like 34 books out. Um, some of them are small and more readable, like... Uh, this one, the story of my wife and me, it's just a fun book. But then uh, the Bible background commentary is the one that's most used. And then I have some other ones like the 4,500 page Acts commentary, which is like not so readable. And <laughs> But <laughs> it, it may help with insomnia or something. So a bunch of, you know, a range of different kinds of books. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad to have you um, on today. We're going to be talking about the historical Jesus. Um, this is a topic we haven't really covered on on Jude 3, uh, but I think it's an, really an important apologetic topic um, for some, you know, especially in Black churches. They're like, who who doesn't think that people don't think that Jesus is a historical figure? But actually, there's quite, quite a bit of conversation around it. Um, why is this such an important topic, do you think? Obviously, yeah. because, why do you think there's so much skepticism around it would be a better question. You know, even when I was an atheist, I wouldn't have said that Jesus didn't exist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be like saying, okay, I don't believe in Islam. I don't believe Muhammad existed. Or mm -hmm. I don't believe in the Bible, so I don't believe the Bible exists. Or I don't believe in the Bible. I don't believe Christians exist. You all don't mm -hmm. exist. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a non sequitur. But some people have... I think taking that route of, you know, trying to, I mean, if you look at the people who teach ancient history 
in universities around the world, people who teach uh, Greek and Roman classics, people who teach uh, New Testament, certainly. I mean, of those who have positions in universities and seminaries, the thousands of professors, I don't know of any who would deny that Jesus existed. Mm-hmm. But on the popular level, uh, and, and you know, those maybe some people teach in other disciplines, but on the popular level, there's a lot of skepticism. People don't realize that by the, by the methods that they use to say Jesus didn't exist, they may as well say the ancient world didn't exist. I mean, because they have to explain away so much, so much evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we don't have videos, but, you know, this is 2,000 years ago. I mean, the kind of evidence we have is better than we have for most historical figures in the ancient world. And actually, we know a whole lot about Jesus, not just that he existed, but, I mean, there's a consensus among scholars from atheist to to Christian. There's a consensus among scholars, not only that Jesus existed, but, you know, certain things, He's he, he was Jewish, he was from Nazareth. The vast majority of scholars believe that Jesus was known for working miracles. Now, this includes scholars who don't believe in miracles, but they believe that Jesus was experienced by his contemporaries as a miracle worker, um, that his disciples believed that they saw him alive from the dead. You know, I mean, there's, there's a, a consensus around a lot of these things, including among scholars who themselves personally don't believe in miracles or that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the popular objections? Like you said, most scholars would agree, in, even in secular spaces, that Jesus existed. But there obviously are popular level sources that kind of make this claim. What are their arguments um, as far as them believing um, that Jesus never existed? I don't actually know what their arguments are because I spend most of my time reading the scholarly scholarly work <laughs> and working in ancient history. But I'm guessing they're just saying there isn't enough evidence, which mm-hmm. is pretty pretty easy to refute. Or they or they say, well, the evidence isn't very good. But again, it's pretty easy to refute if you're talking about evidence from 2,000 years ago. I mean. <clears throat> The majority view among among scholars today who work with the Gospels is that the Gospels are ancient biographies. Mm-hmm. And the way, well, the nature of ancient biography developed over time. So you go back like half a millennium uh, when it was starting to evolve. Biographies were kind of like, you know, a funeral oration you give for somebody, whether they're dead or not. You know, you kind of, exaggerate some things, you know. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, some centuries later, it was kind of like that. But the historiographic apex of ancient biography, that is when it when it was closest to what we would call trying to be like history, is in the first couple centuries. Uh, so it's like, um, it, it's from Cornelius Nepos at the end of the Roman Republic, up until like the early third century. And right in the first and the second century is like the, the pinnacle of when they tried to be most historically accurate. And especially they would be most accurate when they were talking about figures within recent history. Uh, 
oral historians talk about living memory. That's the period when either the, the people are alive, uh, the, well, the eyewitnesses are alive, or the people who knew them were alive. Mm-hmm. I remember I was in a church in, in North Carolina. Uh, I was a member of a church in North Carolina years ago where there were people who actually remembered members of that church who had been born in slavery. So it was still within living memory in that sense. It's usually considered like 60 to 80 years. Well, all the first century gospels are within that time frame. Mm-hmm. So in terms of having, I mean, for any teacher in the ancient world, the only one who might even come close would be Socrates uh, to have, you know, multiple works written about them within living memory. So, you know, I mean, the, the, the sources that we have for Jesus are enormous. And, and of course, we have sources outside the New Testament as well. But we get the most information from Jesus' followers, just like, you know, if you want to know much about Socrates, you're going to get the most detail from those who are his followers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's extremely, extremely helpful because the 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 weight that's put on proving anything in Christianity is incredibly high versus other historical facts that we accept is incredibly, incredibly low. Um, there's a kind of bias in that. I'm sure you've seen that in scholarship. Yeah. Um, quite a lot. Definitely. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, you have a Christian bias. Well, look, I've worked through all these ancient sources, and it looks to me like the people who don't want to accept at least the basic claims of the New Testament are are working with an anti-Christian bias. I mean, the best surviving source on Alexander the Great, who lived 356 to 323 BC, the best surviving source on that is from Arium, um, a historian who lived in the second century AD. So he lived like over 400 years after after Alexander died. And yet the Gospel of Mark, the, the usual critical dating of the Gospel of Mark is only 40 years after mm-hmm. Jesus rose from the dead. So, I mean, we're talking about a much shorter time frame much closer to the time of the eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's that's incredibly vital. Uh, one of the things when you're talking about the dating, that just gave me a flashback from my New Testament class at University of North Florida and our textbook was Bart Ehrman. So <laughs> that was my intro to New Testament scholarship. Yeah. Uh, and it really rocked me, the, the dating in particular, because Ehrman is dating everything later. And it makes it seem like, how can a person remember? And, you know, they bring in the telephone game and you start thinking about, like, if things are passed down, things are lost. Uh, can we trust it? And so it's very that dating, especially of the Gospels, like you pointed out, uh, is is a very a pivotal, pivotal point because it can start to rattle your faith a little bit. Yeah, Bart. When he summarizes scholarship, he tends to summarize. But well, one time I was I was with him, uh, and he said something about most New Testament scholars don't think that Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, and I'm like, I don't think that's correct. And uh, my colleague Ben Witherington said, No, that's not correct. And and then Bart said, Well, that's only if you include evangelicals as scholars. I'm like, Please. <laughs> and then, and then, 
you know, and, and Ben said, well, are you throwing out conservative Catholics too? But anyway, I mean, even, even on Bart's dating though, I mean, Bart talks about um, the telephone game, mm-hmm. but a number of memory theorists have actually criticized that specific analogy, <laughs> uh, his specific analogy. You know, he wrote a book on memory and how we can't remember things. And it's true, like with psychological memory. I mean, if I ask you what you had for lunch last Tuesday, you you may or may not remember. If you ask me, I'll definitely not remember. And that's not just because I'm an absent-minded professor, but um, <laughs> if you ask me every conversation I had last year, obviously I'm not going to remember. We forget way more than we remember. But things that are significant to us, you know, we, we tend to remember those. And especially, you know, after a year, we, we may have forgotten like half of, of the things we thought were significant. But um, studies of long-term memory show that major events in our life, we, we tend to remember those even for four decades later. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the telephone game also, it's like, okay, I whisper something to somebody, they whisper it to somebody else. And, you know, by the time you get to 40 people, somebody's going to mess, have messed it up. So you're thinking like 40 generations of passing it on. But that's not how Jesus' teaching worked. That's not how Jesus' public ministry worked. You had a bunch of people who were all there together. It's That's one generation. That's not 40 generations. Mm-hmm. And so um, a, lot of, a lot of scholars, and especially those like Barry Schwartz, some of the very people he cites about memory have have shown that that's not a valid analogy. Mm-hmm. No, that's helpful because as you're talking about memory, I, start, I started to think about our our justice system, we couldn't, if, if we didn't believe that memory was uh, an effective tool in which to engage people, we wouldn't even be able to have a legal system yeah. because everybody's testimony is based on their memory of events. And yeah. so that society couldn't function if we did away with people's memory. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Eyewitness testimony <clears throat> is, is something that we have to depend on in law, in journalism often in um, anthropology and sociology and certainly historiography. If we couldn't depend on it at all, we'd have to throw out all of ancient literature. Uh, you know, all, all, we wouldn't know anything about the ancient world except we, what we found on coins and you know, what, we could, what we could discern from inscriptions and, and so on. So yeah, it's, it's almost nobody would, would take it that far outside the New Testament. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you brought up a good point. Um, and this is, I don't want to get us too far off of uh, historical Jesus. But when you were talking about uh, the validity of, of evangelical scholarship as it relates to the New Testament, um, it wasn't until I took that New Testament class that I, I, I heard my professor say that not all 13 letters were written by Paul. And so there is this idea that Paul only wrote part of the letters, but he could not have wrote all of the letters. Or I, I believe it's Peter may have wrote first Peter, but not second, or it might be the other way around. I can't remember um, offhand. It was first Peter. Okay. Um, and so all of that, you're starting to take into consider thinking about it. And then they'll, they'll say, well, only evangelical Bible believing scholars believe this because they have a stake in it 
they have a vested interest in them writing this because it becomes, if you think it, then it takes a level of authority, but nobody that has serious scholarship uh, believes that Paul wrote all 13 letters. Um, And so there's this game of who do you trust as it relates to scholarship? Um, But it, it, and for a college student like me who had no other exposure, it was really troubling Cause I'm like, okay, I want to be with the people who've actually studied this from an unbiased perspective. Um, but also at the same time, it's like, this is what I believe to be true. So you're wrestling with that. For those who are wrestling with that, that may be listening to us. Cause I know I'm not the only person that has that experience, has had that experience in class. How do we know which scholarship, um, especially when it comes to the new Testament and, and old Testament as well, but the the challenge to say, oh, this is, these people were the true scholars, and and I guess I want to point out to our audience too, you graduated from Duke, which is a, a progressive uh, institution with a PhD, so you have the same education as somebody who may have taken a more progressive stance. It's not like you went to a conservative evangelical school to get a PhD, and you still line you still would take a more um, evangelical approach to your scholarship. So I hope that question made sense, but that's kind of how, how, how would you help somebody navigate through that? Yeah. Now I'm, I'm sure that, well, not everybody takes like a biased stance, like, Oh, if you're evangelical, you don't count. Um, I have been in places where that's the case. That's not the majority approach that I've, I've experienced from, from colleagues across the, the board. It's like, if you make a good case, that's re- respectable. Um, that's probably the more traditional scholarly approaches. If you make a good case, we'll listen to you. Now, that's certainly the dominant approach in British scholarship and I think German scholarship today. Um, but, you know, I was, I was in another meeting where... Um, Historical Jesus scholars were getting together, and and um, they got somebody from the Jesus Seminar to respond to my um, my, my first historical Jesus book. And he started out by saying, "Well, uh, there are two kinds of scholars: there are critical scholars, and there are evangelicals. And you evangelicals shouldn't even be allowed in the same room with us." <laughs> now, here's the thing: I mean, I'm not going to try to run down his scholarship, but, you know, he, the stuff he's written, it's only, you know, documented a little bit, I think. And if you looked at my work, I mean, it was heavily documented from ancient sources. I'd read through most of ancient literature that's available, that's relevant to the topic. I mean, my acts, my, my, my larger acts commentary, I cited 45,000 references from, from antiquity outside the Bible. So it's not like I don't know the the sources. It's like that's my main thing. And, and plus, in terms of engaging with secondary scholarship, I my bibliography of secondary sources was over ten thousand secondary sources. So, you know, I I have a fairly good understanding of the of the range of of scholarship out there. Now, most of the scholars, from the feedback I got afterwards, most scholars didn't agree with his approach on that. But there are people with that. But then you take talk about who's biased. I mean, I, I've read his stuff, but is he going to read my stuff? <laughs> mm-hmm. So 
Um, in terms of, <clears throat> there, there's a range of scholars. So there are people who are just like biased against, um, you know, they say, well, if you if you believe too much of the Bible, then you're obviously biased. But that's a bias in itself. And there's actually a, there's actually pressure within some academic circles to show how much you don't believe so that you can be respectable. And to me, that's not the right approach we should take. Let's look at the evidence and see where it leads. And there are, there are times where the evidence didn't lead where I expected it to lead. And so I changed my view. Uh, obviously, when I changed my view from atheist to Christian, that was a major shift. But you know, I, I try to go with, with where the evidence leads. Um, and then there, there, there are people who are inflexibly you know, conservative, like, well, I'll just believe this no matter what the evidence says. But scholarship is supposed to be about discovery and building on the information that's there. Mm -hmm. So when we go to Paul's letters, uh, almost all, I think pretty much all of us would agree that Hebrews doesn't count. <laughs> Paul didn't write Hebrews. <laughs> um, and, and there's certain letters that basically everybody agrees on. And then uh, I would make a I would make a strong case for Second Thessalonians being being by Paul. I mean, who in their right mind, who's writing after Paul's day, is going to talk about a man of lawlessness sitting in the temple when the temple got destroyed in seventy, and and with Colossians? I mean, Colossae was destroyed in an earthquake around the year sixty two. So if you've got a pseudepigrapher writing decades later. Who's going to write a letter to a, a city that they know has been destroyed? I mean, some of the some of the anyway. Sorry, there are there are good scholars who who hold different views on some of these things. But I, uh, yeah, some of them some of them you can make stronger cases for than others. But I, yeah, I, I think scholars need to listen to each other and be respectful regarding the evidence. Yeah, and you might be saying listening not really understanding the significance of Paul writing those letters because it, it, then it becomes a question of biblical authority. If how are we measuring contributions of the canon? If, if we can't find an apostle or somebody in close proximity to an apostle that wrote it and identify it, then mm -hmm. the validity of should we listen to it becomes questionable. So that's yeah. why this conversation is significant because it, it, kind of tugs away at authority and the ability to trust a book. Um, so that's that's why, it's particularly for me in my own journey, that question uh, weighed heavily on me when I was in that New Testament class because it really starts to tear the fabric of your belief systems. Yeah, that was actually something that the early church did well because when they decided which gospels should be canonical, they used they used an approach that we would actually use historiographically today. It needs to have been written within living memory. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be either by an eyewitness or somebody who knew the eyewitnesses. Well, that's good historiographic practice. So when you have somebody writing in the first century, by definition, you know, 60 to 80 years, these are all written within living memory of Jesus' ministry. When you have the Gospel of Thomas, on average, dated around the year 140, sometimes dated around 170. 
the Gospel of Thomas is probably the earliest of the of the so-called other Gospels that people talk about, the so-called lost Gospels. They weren't lost, they were thrown out. But, <laughs> um, but that, is, that is way beyond living memory. That's like, you know, if you take the earliest date, if you take 70, that's like 70 years <laughs> after when uh, Mark is uh, often dated. It's, it's, uh, it's over 100 years after Jesus' public ministry. And then most of the so-called lost Gospels are like, they're from the heyday of novels, late second, early third century, and then going on, you know, hundreds of years after, you know, at this point, there's nobody alive who remembers Jesus' public ministry as eyewitnesses. These are these are people making stuff up uh, or recycling what they have in the earlier in the earlier sources. So there was reason not to accept these as canonical, but to accept except the first century ones is canonical. It's not a matter of, of just having a bias because we're Christians. It's, it's, you know, anybody in their right mind who's thinking historically is going to say, okay, well, the, these earliest sources are the best historical sources. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's extremely helpful. I know we got kind of got off the, the uh, case for historical Jesus, but I think that was a, a good uh, sidebar. Going back to our main topic, um, what would be your, if you could give just some points um, to verify the historical Jesus? I mean, you kind of already alluded to it, but for those who are listening, like some takeaway points um, to encourage people's faith um, and to give them kind of some talking points when they're engaging someone who doesn't believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Yeah. Um... There, there are a lot that we could give. I spend, I, have, I teach a forty-hour course in historical Jesus, and so there were, you know, the basics of Jesus existed. You, you know, we we deal with that up front, but then we, then we go into all the historical evidence for, you know, Jesus taught about this subject. Jesus taught about that subject. He told parables like this, and and so on. But just starting with the basics, there are sources from non-Christians from the era that talk about Jesus. Now, they don't talk about Jesus as much, but they talk about Jesus more than they talk about any any other figure who, who might be considered at all comparable. Um, Josephus, first century Jewish historian, one of his favorite figures is Herod Agrippa I. He was king of Judea in the years 41 to 44 very popular because he was descended from the line of the Maccabees and Herod the Great. So Josephus talks a whole lot about him, but Herod Agrippa I only gets a line in, in, a, in one Roman historian. Um, Pontius Pilate, the governor under whom Jesus was executed, he's, he's talked about in Jewish sources, but He's talked about in Roman sources only once because they only brought up people in the provinces as it mattered to them. Well, in the case of Pontius Pilate, he's mentioned in Tacitus's Annals 1544, and here's how he's mentioned. He's mentioned as the governor under whom Jesus was crucified. Mm. <laughs> so um, Jesus actually gets more, um, more attention, even in the Roman sources, than does the governor under whom he was executed. 
be, because Jesus had a following and the followers were spreading in Rome, well, that's when Roman historians took notice. But uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, talks about Jesus being executed under Pontius Pilate, talks about his, his movement, uh, gives us an approximate time frame. There were already thousands of his followers in Rome by the time you get to the year 64 with the fire in Rome. Uh, and then they start getting burned alive by, by Nero to light his imperial gardens at night. Um, Suetonius takes us back way before the year 64 to around the year 49. So like 19 years, given the usual dating, 19 years after Jesus' crucifixion, and those of us who are believers would add, and his resurrection. So this is like really early material <clears throat> talking about Jesus' followers in Rome and debates within the Jewish community there. Um, you also have Josephus himself. He's got, um, it would be his Antiquities, uh, Book 18, paragraphs 63 and 64. <clears throat> he talks about Jesus. And um, later Christian scribes adapted it some, but scholars have pretty much reconstructed what the original form of Josephus' saying was, and it's been confirmed by an Arabic um, version that of Josephus' uh, quotation that's been discovered. And what Josephus says, now, uh, on all these things, there are people, they, they'll come back, they say, well, that's not likely. Uh, I don't believe that that was actually written. But again, the standards that they're using, you can't trust anything in ancient literature. I mean, if you can trust anything at all. Um, Here's what Josephus said, and this is reconstructed as, as one of the most famous uh, scholars who worked on this was uh, Geza Vermisch, who was a Hungarian Jewish uh, professor of early Judaism at Oxford University. Uh, his his colleague E.P. Sanders was one of my one of my mentors. He was on my uh, doctoral committee. Um, E.P. Sanders is also a hero of Barderman, by the way. But mm -hmm. um, so Ge Geza Vermisch. Uh, reconstructs it this way, that we can tell Jesus was, um, he was a sage, he was a wise sage, he had a lot, a lot of people following him because of what he taught. He also was known for paradoxa, which is, is a Greek word that Josephus uses elsewhere where, where he talks about Elisha's miracles. And so most scholars, including Gezevermish, think that Jesus was being experienced as a miracle worker, and that Josephus talks about this, this first century Jewish historian. Jesus was also, um, he ran into trouble with the elite in Jerusalem who handed him over to Pontius Pilate and Jesus was, was executed. So um, in terms of Jesus working miracles, that actually has been the main objection that people have raised, like, oh, miracles can't happen uh, in secular, secular scholarship. But today, the majority of scholars acknowledge that Jesus was experienced by his contemporaries as a miracle worker. It's not only Josephus, but later reports from those who opposed the early Christian movement acknowledged that Jesus was experienced as a miracle worker. They said, no, it's sorcery. But, but they, they wouldn't deny that people experienced these things. Um, so some of the later rabbis, there was a a Gentile critic by the name of Celsus, or Celsus, people often say. Um, there's just, you know, 
plenty of extra biblical material, more than you would expect from, you know, other figures in the province of, of Judea or Galilee. And then when you look to the stuff from his followers, there's just so much material. And because it it comes in different strands and different sources, we can compare those sources. And also, you know, if somebody's writing this later, like 40 years later, uh, you would expect them to adapt it in a way that would communicate with their audience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you expect it to be in good Greek. And you can see, you know, where Luke uses Mark, he, he cleans up the, the grammar for a higher level of Greek and so on. Mm-hmm. But there are all these sayings of Jesus where you have still Aramaic figures of speech showing through. Like this isn't something that was made up later. It goes back to the earliest earliest memories of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the sayings fit the kind of sayings we know were spoken by Jewish teachers in Judea and Galilee or further to the east, but not not spoken by Jewish people or, or certainly Greek thinkers elsewhere in the Roman world. So, I mean, we have all these different lines of evidence to, to work from. So anyway, that's just a summary. No, that's extremely, extremely helpful. Um, you know, when I was looking at this in seminary in um, one of my New Testament classes, I, as I was reading through one of the books, I can't remember what the book was, but I was like, this: the burden of proof is so high that if we didn't even have if we didn't have science or DNA, you couldn't even validate that your parents were your parents because you have no memory of coming from them. Like your first your toddler years, you don't have a memory of you being born, so you couldn't even verify based on your standard of your burden of proof that your parents are actually your parents outside of other people saying that. There's no way for you to, like the standard of proof for this particular scholar was so high. I was like, you can't know anything about the past and also like the 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 not so distant past. Um, it was just very interesting. A couple of years ago, I went to my 40th high school reunion. So I know, uh, well, yeah, probably probably most of your listeners aren't haven't had a 40th high school reunion yet, but I, I went to my 40th high school reunion and um, one of the people that I, I talked with there, she was in my uh, third grade class. So this is going back not not just 40 years, but 50 years. And she said, oh, I remember when you were, you were humming Gilligan's Island. This shows how far back it goes. You were humming Gilligan's Island and the teacher made you Say, okay, if you're going to do that, you need to sing it in front of the class. And so made me sing it in front of the class. And and she brought her husband over and he was like, yeah, she's told me about this. I was like, really? <laughs> uh, so I remembered that independently. It's not a coincidence. You know, we both hallucinated the same thing. <laughs> we both, uh, she remembered it because she thought it was funny. I remembered it because I was traumatized. So <laughs> sometimes we... Uh, you know, and like if our parents tell us stuff from their childhood, I mean, we're not going to remember everything, but, you know, we won't remember everything precisely. But, you know, to say that people can't remember something after 40 years is not true. And especially when you have a, a group that's sharing their stories together, and it so happens they're in leadership in the church. And and in terms of memory from one culture to another, am I going too far off on this to talk about No, memory? you're fine. You're fine. 
thanks. Yeah, um, I, I had a neighbor. She she passed away at the age of ninety six, but I I uh, would would listen to her stories, and she said that back when she was a child, they didn't have uh, air conditioning, so they'd sit out in the front porch. They didn't have uh, TV, obviously. Uh, I'm not even sure if they had radio, but they just sit out on the front porch and they and they tell stories passed on in their family for for years. She told me stories going back to the 1700s, and I was able to go and verify some of that information afterwards, just mm-hmm. to see if I could. And you know, these our culture today. I mean, today we you know our collective memory is Google. Uh, so, you know, my, my students' uh, scores in midterms have been going down some because <laughs> we don't exercise <laughs> memory so much. <clears throat> but in some cultures, memory is highly valued. So you have people who <clears throat> don't speak Arabic, but they can recite large portions or even the entire Quran from, from memory. And that was the case in the first century Mediterranean world where memory was highly valued. I mean, even even people who could read, they didn't have major search functions. They didn't have indexes. They'd have to remember stuff, you know, rather than go paging through a bunch of scrolls, <laughs> trying to unroll them, trying to find out where it is and, and so on. So memory was very highly valued. And it was a major thing in Judea and Galilee. So Josephus, again, tells us that that most Jewish boys were raised to memorize the Torah. Probably not the whole thing, but I mean, they, you know, they, they learned it orally. They, they remembered it. That was also expected for rabbis, but that was also expected in all of ancient education. If you had any education at all, you were, you were trained, uh, even at the elementary level, you'd memorize the sayings of famous teachers and so on. At the advanced level, if you became a disciple of any kind of teacher, you were expected to be able to pass on their teachings. Well, if Jesus was a teacher, which virtually everybody, except the Jesus mythers, <laughs> virtually everybody agrees that Jesus was a teacher. I mean, even, even the Jesus seminar agrees that Jesus was a teacher. If Jesus was a teacher, then he had disciples. Mm-hmm. And disciples were expected to carry on the work of their teacher. They were expected to be able to pass on their teacher's teachings. Uh, Usually ancient teachers, and this had been true for like 500 years before Jesus' ministry, usually ancient teachers left the matter of publication to their disciples. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't write something themselves. They would just teach it, and the disciples would take notes in the Greek world. Or, um, in Judea and Galilee, probably more often would practice it by memory. But they, would, uh, they, they could then publish it afterwards. If the disciples were illiterate, it's no big deal. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying they were illiterate, but some people say, well, they were illiterate. If the, They couldn't have all been illiterate because tax collectors, if we know anything about them from the mounds of ancient tax records, they were not illiterate. But even if they were all illiterate, you know, if you even have 500 disciples, uh, you know, besides the 12, and, and Paul already tells us there were 500 witnesses who saw Jesus live on one occasion. Mm-hmm. Uh, even with that, you're going to have some who would be literate. And most people, even the elite who knew how to write, they would dictate to somebody else and have them write. So uh, the objections based on, on memory, um, they, just, they just don't add up. 
uh, and especially when you take into account that these were disciples. And from Paul's undisputed letters, like Galatians, we know that these disciples were in leadership in the early church. It's not like, you know, Jesus taught and then some people heard him here and there. Uh, and then, you know, 40 years later, they're trying to piece it together. It's like, you know, he had disciples. Come on. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's extremely helpful. Um, as we close out, what what uh, what do you think our audience should know about the whole historical Jesus that you haven't covered yet or something you haven't already said that you want our audience to take away? <clears throat> Back in the 1700s, when the more skeptical approaches to historical Jesus began to, to rise, <clears throat> one of the main objections was people, because of the worldview, they no longer believed in miracles. And so, uh, and that's partly the influence of David Hume, a philosopher named David Hume, and that was that remained characteristic of the more skeptical approaches to to Jesus in the 1800s in the 1900s and so a lot of it comes down to you know people say well you know one third of the gospel of mark talks about miracles we know that eyewitnesses would never claim that so this stuff can't go back to eyewitnesses but it all rests on the premise that there isn't a god who does miracles and that premise is based on another premise, which is that you never have any credible eyewitness evidence for miracles. Hume got away with that in the 1700s, although he was severely critiqued, including by the, basically the, uh, there's a, a, a method used in modern statistics and the person who pioneered it first deployed that method <laughs> Uh, it's used in modern statistics to refute Hume's argument about about uh, about there not being any any uh, credible eyewitnesses. But there was a Pew Forum survey done in 2006, and of people surveyed in just 10 countries, in these 10 countries alone, you've got hundreds of millions of people who claim to have witnessed miracles. Now. None of us would say that all those claims are valid, but you can't start a priori with, like like Hume did, from the premise of uniform human experience excludes miracles mm -hmm. in a world where you have hundreds of millions of people claiming miracles. And Hume actually took this argument to, so so that he could exclude as many people as possible he said the only people who count are people who are highly educated, um, people who have a reputation to lose. They also have to be white, and they also have to be from the Western world, uh, and they also have to be from modern times. So he was really, he, he was basically an ethnocentric bigot. Uh, I mean, mm -hmm. it was pro-slavery. His arguments were used in favor of slavery for like a century after him. So... But even even on those on those terms, I mean, what did he do when you did have uh, a medically documented case from his own era, public healing of something that couldn't be explained away? He said, "Well, we know this didn't happen," and then he moved on with his argument as if he just proved his case. 
So a lot of the whole foundation for skepticism in scholarship rests on that. <laughs> it's a very tenuous foundation. And then uh, some of the Jesus mythers who speak of Jesus as a mythological figure, they're dealing with stuff from the early 1900s that's been long since refuted. But, you know, the books are still in libraries, so people people can find them. And But the mythological comparisons they make are based on figures shrouded in legend or mythology from like half a millennium or a thousand years earlier. Mm. None of them. And, and, and sometimes people will compare novels and you can get, you know, interesting literary comparisons. But when they compare novels, we we do have a few novels written about historical figures, but always figures that were like centuries earlier. Nobody within living memory do we have any records from antiquity of a novel being written about that person. Mm -hmm. So Jesus being written about within living memory is really significant. And actually most ancient novels were romances which is a feature notoriously lacking in the Gospels and Acts. So, I mean, it's it's like the, the stuff that people do is not always really either honest with the data or at least they don't know very much about the ancient world when they do these things. And mm -hmm. I lament that it's it's that way. Yeah. You made a fantastic point um, that made me think of something uh, so there's when we talk about scholarship and seeing the Bible as authoritative, uh, one of the things that people say, um, especially in African-American context, is that the taking the authority of Scripture seriously as, you know, people say different things when they say inerrant. Um, so I, I, I want to use that in a in a broader perspective because people have different definitions. Right. But the authority of the Bible, especially the New Testament, because of slavery passages and, and, and passages on women, that it shouldn't be taken as authoritative. And so it's interesting, especially I'm just thinking about the African-American context. When you talk about Hume and his skepticism and kind of being the father of that kind of skepticism, uh, some would call it a hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, I'm sure you've heard all these terms. Mm -hmm. It was actually someone who was, who was bigoted and racist. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's just very interesting because it's the, the skeptical framework that is used as a basis of throwing out authority uh, is, it's it's just a very it just yeah. uh made me think about so many different things so thank you for yeah. sharing that can, can i can i come in on on that too is it all right because um, when, when i was um i was actually ordained in an african-american church and my my uh senior pastor there the first stuff he started giving me to read autobiography of malcolm x and slave narratives and so on and as i'm reading the slave narratives there were a lot of people who said, we love Jesus, but we hate Paul because Ephesians 6, 5 was quoted in them, slaves submit to your masters. But what, in terms of basic hermeneutics, uh, in terms of how we read texts in light of their context and so on, that was completely out of context. 
completely out of its cultural setting too, because first century urban household slavery was completely different. And Paul wasn't even addressing the institution of slavery. He was dealing with people in, in their situation. But he's, he's following a format in Ephesians and Colossians called, what scholars have called them household codes. There were a lot of people who wrote on that in antiquity. But the basic framework of that, going back to Aristotle, was the male head of the household, how he's to rule his wife, his children, and his slaves. But Paul really adapts these codes. I mean, he's in Roman custody, so he has to care what, what Rome thinks about, you know, this subversive new cult from the East, uh, which was how they viewed it. Um, <clears throat> uh, the big thing the Romans were concerned about was subverting traditional Roman family values. But as Paul addresses it, he says, well, first of all, the, the word submit or wives submit your husbands in 5.22 isn't actually there in Greek. If somebody doesn't, doesn't believe me, look it up in an interlinear. Uh, it's not saying, okay, wives, do to your husbands whatever you want. <laughs> but it's, it's, uh, it's borrowed from the preceding verse. So you can't have it in verse 22 without having it in verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. Wives, to your husbands. And then 6.5, yeah. Slaves submit to the slaveholders. You go down a few verses to verse 9. Literally what it says is, in, in Greek, slaveholders do the same things to them. So Paul so radically adapts. I don't know anybody else in antiquity who did this. Adapts these household codes in the framework of mutual submission. I mean, who, who ever heard of slaveholders submitting to their slaves? But he's, he's following Jesus' teaching about, you know, the greatest among you is the least. And, and, and Jesus himself came as our servant and how we're to serve one another. I mean, he had totally adapts it. And so people who, who used that to support slavery were actually doing the opposite of what Paul was teaching. Because uh, these were people who were already in the situation, but Paul was teaching the slaveholders to submit to their slaves <laughs> in their situation. And when I was, uh, I, I taught for four years at, at a seminary attached to an HBCU, and I had uh, access to the, to the library there, and I spent a whole lot of time reading through the, the works of um, slaveholder theologians and abolitionist theologians. And slaveholder theologians, basically all they did was proof text. But abolitionist theologians, they read the texts in their context. And they, I mean, like they would look at Exodus and Deuteronomy forbids kidnapping. Well, what was kidnapping used for in the ancient Near East? It was used for slave trading. The penalty is death. They said, well, what do you think God thinks about slaveholders? <laughs> and so, I mean, the, the abolitionists had it right. They had, they had a sound biblical hermeneutic. And so... The problem isn't the Bible. The problem is the way the Bible was exploited and twisted by people who didn't start with the right premise. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. These were people who were starting with their own economic interests and not with the fear of the Lord. That is so, so helpful, I think, to our audience to hear, because you often don't even think about that that submission part, part that you that you brought out. 
you know, there's the people when they talk about it, they'll say, well, obviously, Paul isn't talking about uh, antebellum slavery, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have others like where he says, if you could get free, get free. So he doesn't have this narrow yeah. view, you know, mm-hmm. uh, his conversation with Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. Like those kinds of things point to a more comprehensive view of what Paul is saying yes. um, outside of that narrow understanding of the verse. But I think what you just highlighted with that verse, you just took it to a whole nother level for for some people who may not thought about like that submission not being there in the Greek and what Paul is really doing with the household codes. And he's saying basically everybody lived in submission to one another versus the way the Romans are teaching you that it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of this hier- hierarchical, hierarchical um, perspective. You no, know, he's saying like we all are in community and submitting to one another, no matter where you are on the, the kind of caste system uh, if you will be of of the Roman society, yeah, yeah, yeah. In 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 Roman society, definitely wasn't wasn't racially based. It was they would enslave anybody they could. Um, in fact, the majority of their slaves were Greeks, which is ironic since a few centuries earlier, Aristotle said that all non Greeks are fit to be enslaved. Of course, Aristotle was Greek, so mm-hmm. I mean there was there was ethnic prejudice in antiquity, but it wasn't based on color. And mm-hmm. some of that actually goes back uh, historically to, like, you have ninth century texts where uh, this, I don't think this goes back to Muhammad himself, but some ninth century Arabic texts that talk about um, Africans can be enslaved because of the curse of Ham. And uh, some some of that, the curse of Ham, some of that uh, goes back as far as the Talmud, although I don't think it was related to slavery there. But um, but these are things, I mean, Curse of Ham isn't in the Bible. <laughs> so <laughs> you have all these traditions that, that developed over time for economic interests. And people exploited them for their own benefits. But um, the people who were really into the Bible, who really were reading the Bible on its own terms, uh, Le- Leroy Sunderland in 1830 produced an anti-slavery manual that was really, um, it just goes through the Bible. In another book, The Testimony of God Against Slavery, just goes through the Bible and takes all the passages about justice and liberation and so on. Yeah. Anyway, we could go on and on on this. There's just so much. <laughs> well, this has been a very rich conversation. What book would you recommend on the historical Jesus and any other recommendations? Obviously, your books um, you could just search Craig Keener on Amazon and a whole list of books would come up. But outside of your books, would there be any other books you would recommend on the historical Jesus in particular? And also I, the dates of the Gospels. Mm. <clears throat> for for historical Jesus, now my works that have been published so far on a fairly technical level, if you want the technical level, so Historical Jesus of the Gospels, and then the one on the genre of the Gospels is Christobiography. Um, another one, it's uh, it's one that I use for my master students often, is called The Jesus Legend by um, Paul Letty and Greg Boyd. Um, Mark Strauss also has some good stuff, which includes the, um, the he deals with the, the Gospels, the dating of the Gospels, 
Daryl Bach has some good stuff on this. Uh, ben Witherington, my colleague here at Asbury, has some some good stuff on this. There's there's uh, I know I'm leaving people out in terms of uh, now no, we're all on the more conservative end, but um, <clears throat> you want the really liberal end, you go to the Jesus Seminar. Um, centrist would be like uh, Garrett Tyson and Annette Mertz, E.P. Sanders, and and so on, but. Um, Probably most of your your audience would be most interested in the things, say, by Mark Strauss, um, Daryl Bach, Eddie and Boyd, and, and so on. Mm-hmm. That's helpful. How can people get in contact with you on social media? Well, I have I have a Twitter account. I don't t- tweet very much, uh, <laughs> but, but more often uh, YouTube their postings and there's also craigkeener.com uh keener not kenner but uh, c-r-a-i-g-k-e-e-n-e-r.com well thank you so much craig it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast and thank you for watching another episode of the g3 project remember you can get our curriculum through eyes of color we have a new curriculum coming out courageous conversations we're so excited about online courses stream the podcast wherever you stream your favorite podcast you can watch all the episodes on um youtube facebook all the things uh you can become a monthly partner by going to g3project.org and hitting that donate tab you have the option to give online or give by mail um remember here at the g3 project we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well so thank you so much for tuning in also remember we have our bible engagement app in partnership with back to the bible to help you get better engaged in the bible every single day you take a survey it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you bible verses based on those so it's a great app you can download the app by searching in your app store or google play searching g3 project and it'll be right there for you so thank you again remember if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver you can do so on our website or by mail just go to g3project.com hit that donate tab and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online we appreciate you and i'm so so thankful for you God bless. And remember, here at the Jupe 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.